Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us for this Sydney Ideas event. My name is Chloe Maxwell. I feel very honoured and privileged to be speaking on this stage tonight. My father actually came to this university, he's here this evening. He told me he hasn't been here since he graduated. It's only 10 or so years ago. No, it was a long time ago, before I was born. It's a beautiful hall and I feel very honoured to be here tonight. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. This evening, we are going to explore the theme, Understanding Neurodiversity and Living with Autism. Autism is a lifelong developmental condition characterised by difficulties in social interaction, communication, restricted and repetitive interests and behaviours and sensory sensitivities. The term spectrum is used to emphasise that autism presents differently in every single person. People with autism have a wide range of challenges as well as abilities. An estimated one in 100 Australians are on the autism spectrum. It is four times more common in boys than girls. Tonight we will be discussing how education environments and workplaces can create uh, inclusive and accessible environments for people with autism. How can this be done seamlessly with equity and dignity? What supports need to be in place? Who needs to be involved and when? What are we doing well in Australia and what could we possibly do better? Are there international examples perhaps that we can be learning from? What do schools, universities and other education providers need to know about supporting students with autism to enable these students to have a positive and successful experience within these environments? I will be putting all of these questions and more to the panel who will each bring their own personal and professional perspectives on inclusive and accessible environments to the conversation. Without further ado though, I would like to ask Professor Adam Guestella to the lectern. He is going to give the keynote tonight. Put your hands together for Professor Adam. What I'd like to talk to you today is really about the way that we're addressing um, the issue of supporting people on the spectrum and um, I understand um, there, are, there, there is a lot of debate in the field about how best to support people on the spectrum. Um, and one of the things I'd like to do is, uh, for this talk is do a bit of a deep dive into some of the neuroscience that's informing um, how we can uh, support people in relation to social development. But then also um, how we're trying to break down some of the silos, the barriers that stop people from uh, benefiting from mainstream services and whether that's education, health, uh, mental health services. Um, Under the rubric, often that um, people have disabilities 
Um, so that's going to be the nature of my talk. Now, I'm a, um, at the um, Brain and Mind Centre and also at the Westmead Children's Hospital. Um, and um, the kids' hospital is actually the largest assessment service for people with autism in the country. So um, they, they see about 1,200 kids per year. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful service in terms of providing a diagnosis, and it's also a free service. Um, so um, if you go to the community um, clinics, you'll be waiting um, a long time for service. Um, if you go privately, you can pay over $2,000 for a diagnosis. Um, and if you go to the hospital, you'll probably wait for nine months um, to be assessed, such as their wait list. Um, and one of the things that uh, I'd like to emphasise in my talk is that I think we have to move the focus away um, from just getting a diagnosis and, and giving families a piece of paper that says um, that, that this is a diagnosis that needs support into actually directing and providing support to families for roadmaps about how to access that support. And I think that's really, really important. So just to um, extend on what's already been said, but to clarify just if there's a definitional, definitional issues, the DSM-5 um, came out a few years ago and you know they really essentially brought together all of the diagnostic labels underneath autism in the term autism spectrum disorder. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't multiple different types of autism and we often think about autism as autisms and as I ex explain what autism is, you'll start to see that it's so many different things um, to each individual person. But um, the, the key is that the, the reason the DSM did that was because they, the, the panel, they, they weren't certain that there was enough data to support each of these diagnostic categories. And, uh, you know, we're now at a space where we're bringing the data together and the research is now focusing on what are the data-driven ways that we can break up these categories, if, if, if at all. And really we haven't got very far with that process. We know that the, the rates in Australia, the, the official rates are one in 100. In America, it's one in 58. In South Korea, it's one in 36. Um, it often depends on the services available for assessment um, in and surveillance in relation to diagnosis. Our best guess in Australia is probably around one in 68 or something, something like that. There doesn't seem to be a huge cultural influence in terms of the rate of diagnosis. Um, we know that there's um, a high heritability, um, but there's also environmental influence in terms of what leads to the diagnosis. We know what's made it an issue in Australia is that it, um, it, it, it is also a major proportion of the services provided by the NDIS, so 31% of the services in the NDIS are directed to, to people um, with autism. And it's, as, as Chloe has suggested, it's characterised by um, its defining features are really around social communication and restricted and stereotype behaviours. Now, the point there is that a diagnosis is not meant to um, encompass all of the needs of the individual. What a diagnosis is meant to do is to differentiate it from other disorders. So um, children with autism and adults with autism have all sorts of other needs, just like everyone else, but this is the defining feature which differentiates it from other, um, if you like, other disorders. What I'd like you to do 
before we get into that, is um, focus on these videos just so you can get an idea of the sorts of assessments that we do to try and um, identify young children who have autism and those that don't, just so you can get an, a, a flavour of um, some of the things we're interested in. Uh, the video on the left is a, of a girl that has been diagnosed with autism, and the video on the right is what we would say is someone who does not meet criteria. What we're really interested in is the observable sort of social interaction gestures, the way that eye-to-eye um, -eye contact is made, joint attention is made, that they share their social experience with the assessor. You'll see with the assessor on, on my left um, that she makes lots of presses to try and join in, in an interaction, and you'll see the responses of, of the girl that... Um, is classically diagnosed. What's wrong with that? I'd like this body dress. Can I be her? So you can see um, there's lots of, of, of sort of joint attention sharing of uh, whatever the game is that the girl is playing here. Um, in a typical assessment, she would not be being coded at all in terms of joint play or eye gaze or turn taking for um, on the, being on the autism spectrum. Whereas the girl on the left is you know, very focused on the fire engine and the ladder on the fire engine. The assessor's trying to make presses to play an, uh, a different game with the girl. And it's, it's almost like the girl is um, just entirely focused on, on, on that fire engine. Now, I'm not proposing as to what the reasons are, the reason why the girl is focused on the fire engine. There are multiple reasons. Um, but it's, that's very much a typical interaction for what... Um, classifies someone on the spectrum. And I just, I really want you to sort of appreciate what it means if you don't understand the social world like other people do, okay? So if, if, if a child doesn't have the exposure early in life to lots of social interaction, um, to groups, and then later in life struggles to understand the nuances in social rules, difficulties can emerge. So in this story, I'm going to talk about John. John walks um, into his bedroom. He scans the top of his dresser. He pulls out his dresser drawers and rummages around inside. He crinkles his brow and scratches his head. He looks around the rest of his room. He shakes his head from side to side. He pats his trouser pockets. He reaches inside his trouser pockets and pulls his hands out empty. He shakes his head from side to side again, and he puts his hands up on his hips and sighs. He stomps on... He stomps um, out of the room and rushes down the stairs. Now, I'm sure most of you sort of get an idea of what's going on for John. He's certainly looking for something. He can't find it. But we don't say any of that. Everything in red on that slide is something you inferred. Um, it's something that wasn't stated explicitly in the story. Right? And that means that you had some understanding of, the social, of a social structure, of what that person was doing, of what their intentions were to make those inferences. Not, now, some people on the spectrum and, and those who are with other conditions who, have, who struggle with um, understanding social situations may not get those things in red, okay? And that, if, if we just take that one story, just that one story and say, wow, that must make things pretty confusing. Imagine being in a social group at school, imagine where there's multiple different messages coming along at university. Um, imagine giving a presentation and trying to respond to people's questions. It makes a whole range of situations far more challenging. Okay? It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with that. It just means different supports are needed for that person. So often in classrooms, we, we help teachers to, to make sure they don't say things that 
aren't um, very clear. So if the, if the teacher says, for example, I'll be back in a minute, some students will be sitting there waiting for 60 seconds until that teacher comes back. Or if they say, you know, the person laughed their head off, they'd be horrified at the idea of someone's head falling off. Um, picking up the pace might be looking around trying to see what they have to pick up and watching your step well they'd be watching the way they're walking more likely to fall over it's I mean it's it's the idea of just being aware of the nuances in language and also in intention and gesturing and it's it, it's it's an art form um, to be aware of that okay sorry now we run, a, at the university, uh, um, at the Headspace, we've long run a social group to try and help people with social anxiety and social skills um, with autism. It's a, it, it really developed out of a mental health need that lots of people on the spectrum were attending Headspace and they really didn't know, Headspace services didn't know what to do um, and we started developing groups and um, mental health responses for, um, for people on the spectrum. And so we, essentially what we did is help provide some of that structure that wasn't intuitive and it was really good common sense. Um, but I guess um, people hadn't sort of thought about doing that. And it's interesting when we ask the group members when they go through the social anxiety program and learn some of the structures that are needed in social situations that help them and support them, we get these really interesting comments from people that um, for the longest time they thought there were these unspoken rules. Um, and it's pretty easy just to summarise and go, well, I'm just bad at peopling rather than there's, there's things that I can learn and, and, and uh, there's a way the environment can support me. The ASD group was the first time I'd, I'd encountered information about those unspoken expectations neurotypical people have, but it helped me to understand that, that socialising was a two-way street. There are things that they had to do as well, not just me, um, to make a social situation work. And so one of the things that um, I think is really important, um, both in terms of delivery of mental health interventions as what we do, but in education and university settings, is making sure that we're providing the right instructions and the right supports to be able to make sure that people can succeed. Just going on about this, it's not all about social behaviour. So if, this is a classic slide, a lot of people use it, and it really defines the core features of autism, but all the variety of other things that people may experience. And the diagnosis doesn't capture that. And so one of the things which I'm going to be talking to you about briefly is how we can respond to people's needs, not just the diagnosis. And it leads us into the space of neurodiversity. Now, the neurodiversity movement has been a, a really wonderful movement. It's emphasised multidimensionality, dimensionality on different domains, where there isn't a point that you pass that is wrong, there's a point that you pass which requires more support, and there's support that should be provided in the environment. And there are both strengths and weaknesses. So, if, for example, we often see people who struggle with attention switching, uh, mental flexibility in terms of switching from one task to another. In the converse, they have got really great attention to detail, or great memory, or great focus. And so it's really about trying to understand the spectrum of strengths and the spectrum of needs and making sure that the environment can adapt to that. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm just going to, to do a deep dive into what we do in neuroscience, what some of the stuff at the University of Sydney that we're doing to try and address social development. Um, so 
we actually know that social development um, is a problem that affects lots of children. It's not unique just to autism. For example, children with ADHD struggle with um, different aspects of social development. 60% uh, report significant difficulties uh, in social environments. But we know that that social development begins very early on in life. In fact, we know the amygdala, which is a, a, a key gatekeeper for the connections involved in social processing, that development begins in the first few weeks of a fetus's life. We know that by 32 weeks, it's very well developed. It's connected with the entire social network in the brain. And the fetus can begin to understand the mother's voice. Uh, when the baby is born, they show preference to mother and father voice, and they show a preference to learn the language of the spoken parents. We know that the brain architecture essentially occurs in the first year of life, although there is a strong genetic component. And we've become really interested in is there a way that we can support that brain architecture to, if you like, coordinate and facilitate uh, and respond more effectively to social environments? So we've been studying um, at, at the Brain and Mind Centre um, brain development and looking at the role of things like, uh, such as GABA and the way that GABA facilitates brain communication. We're finding um, differences in the way that uh, people with autism um, have in, in terms of GABA levels. And we've developed brain circuit models of social development. So what are the specific brain responses required to make social learning more effective? And I, I, when we talk about social learning, we, we started to talk about things like ABA therapy, uh, ESDM therapy, the types of therapy that teach about social rules. And there, there has been a lot of controversy around ABA, particularly when um, uh, negative uh, punishment strategies have been used. But these days, they very much tend to be about reward and facilitating um, adaptive behaviour as opposed to focusing on punishment. Sorry? Oh, so that's what that yeah. is. Yeah. So what this work shows, though, is that families can spend 40 hours per... They're often required to spend 40 hours per week for over, you know, up to two years trying to teach social rules to, um, for the benefit of their, their child. And the evidence is pretty clear that I, uh, these sorts of social skill-type therapies are useful. They do benefit um, young children. Um, but it's... Uh, more beneficial to children who have good language ability and a great therapist engagement. Um, we've been really interested in the sorts of things that are happening in the brain during social development and sorts of chemicals that might be super important, important for brain coordination to facilitate social learning. And the most important chemical um, in the world today around this is oxytocin. It's a hormone and neuropeptide. It facilitates brain coordination. Um, it facilitates awareness of social rules. Um, and it facilitates empathy. It increases one's ability to um, focus on the eyes and the, the, the key parts of faces. And we know that when we engage in lots of social interaction behaviour like nursing, cuddling, touching, lots of oxytocin is released. Um, and for this reason, it's thought of as a sort of the, a, a, a chemical that is involved in social bond and social development. And so one of the things we've been interested, so Emmanuel and I have been involved in a program seeing how interactions with pets can influence um, brain development. 
And we've been running clinical trials administering oxytocin to see if not only if we produce it endogenously or naturally, but if we administer it, how does it influence child development? And in fact, um, a couple of years ago, we showed the first evidence of a medication that improved social responsiveness. So we got an improvement in social responsiveness in young children receiving oxytocin. But this is the key part of the story, and this is why um, we're really interested in it. The mother says the child was more willing to be in a group, more willing to be in a conversation. His eye contact was, was better. It wasn't perfect, but it was better. And he was doing a whole lot of more talking. Um, we were doing a lot of other intervention, but we weren't seeing a lot of results. And the trial seemed to be the point where he was able to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Mm-hmm. And that's the key, that in our view, oxytocin is helping with brain coordination and facilitation of social understanding. And so we, we think if we can tap into just the right moments, that we can improve social learning. We're not giving oxytocin as a long-term intervention. We've just developed a, a new ligand, um, which basically tracks where oxytocin goes in the brain. And hopefully by next year, we'll be able to show you the exact circuits in the brain that are influenced when we administer oxy, oxytocin, really to facilitate social behavior. Now, um, in my role, I, become, I have become very concerned with people accessing support to make sure that people are seen for their needs, not their disorder. Um, and the problem is that historically, autism has been seen as a disability and therefore it has been excluded from standard health systems such as mental health services um, and there hasn't been the support in terms of mainstream education uh, and university systems. And we want to change all that. And there's good reason to change all that. If we know, we know that mental health is a major issue for people on the spectrum. So we know, for example, our work in Headspace this year showed that 50% of the people with autism that attended Headspace reported severe depression at a level that was similar to those with major depression. Yet services across the country, their most common response is we don't see people on the spectrum. There's probably other services that provide mental health support. This is despite there being a 10 times suicide risk increase for people on the spectrum. And depression and anxiety being the most important predictor of disability in the population. Similarly, if we look at employment rates when people leave school, over half the people of people with autism struggle to get a job. Much higher, it's about 30% for, other pe- for people with other types of disabilities. Um, and when they are employed, they tend to be employed for fl- fewer hours with a narrow range of jobs um, than other people with other disabilities. So we've made the comment that a game-changing shift is needed, that we need to bring mainstream services together to be able to provide services for people with autism. And we've come together across paediatricians, education providers, um, geneticists, um, community advocates, um, really to to, to form a team that can drive this um, forward um, with the Children's Hospital and with the Children's Hospital that sees over 2,000 children a year. I mean, we want to access families from the moment they access those services and identify what their needs are, provide parenting support programs. Um, And this has actually been something that's been taken on by the nation. And just recently, we've established Neurodevelopment Australia because all the children's hospitals in the nation 
all the universities, major children's universities in the nation, have all recognised the need to come together around neurodevelopment. And what is needed is really a system change to create affordable, equitable access to all the things that everyone else has access to. Um, that is needs focused, not diagnosis focused. That's integrated, coordinated and responsive. And there are two um, things I'd like to talk about. The first is we've teamed up with Headspace National, the PHNs in rural and urban settings, um, the AMA and the APS, really to provide the tools needed, so education. So there's sort of two reasons why people don't get mental health services from my view. One is people often don't know that they can access those services. And two, the professionals don't know or don't believe or don't have confidence in their ability to provide that service. So we're going to tool up the, the nation to be able to provide mental health services um, across, across the nation and together. And the second um, project is an employment-based project with Toll, and we're looking at um, providing roadmaps for when people employ people on the spectrum, um, evidence-based strategies to improve inclusion, um, and to make sure that people can maintain jobs. And we're using Toll as a pilot site uh, this year, and next year we hope to go across the nation with Toll. So thank you very much. That's all I'd like to say. Thank you so much, Professor. That was amazing. Uh, I especially loved how you spoke about different supports are needed for different people on the spectrum because it is a spectrum. I'm going to sit down now and uh, pose some questions to the panel. I'd like to ask you, Max, what was school like for you? Did you experience any challenges and what did you find enjoyable? Now, this is interesting because for a very large portion of my life, uh, I was homeschooled uh, because it various different points. Uh, I did go to school and things happened, as they do, and we sort of went bugger this and uh, decided to do it ourselves. And so uh, I went to, I think my earliest exposure was like Montessori. I went to a Montessori preschool, which was rather unique. and. There's, there's a rather interesting anecdote. I don't want to prattle on too much, but um, uh, I'll, I'll fast forward a bit. So basically, when I went to, uh, I, I, did, I didn't do my HSCs or in any of my like, formalised education here in Australia. I actually went over to the UK uh, and did the international GCSEs, the IGCSEs, and the A-levels. And the IGCSEs, we all did homeschooled. And I did relatively well in them, I think. And then when we came to the A-levels, they were a bit harder. And so we thought, OK, let's put them in college. And the disability services there were perhaps a little over-enthusiastic in their job. And they tended to wrap me up in cotton wool a little bit, which was, it was, it was good, but it's like, a little too much help sometimes. So one I remember specifically was on my exams, they'd uh, asked for someone to be a prompt to come over and just tap their finger on my desk uh, whenever I'd look like I was like drifting off in the exam. And I found that incredibly distracting <laughs> because whenever I was 
drifting off. I was actually trying to think very hard <laughs> about this absolutely horrible sort of like inverse differential equation, whatever the hell it was. <laughs> and uh, I got them to just take the prompt off my needs as soon as possible after that. But um, uh, I mean, like, who, who here remembers the quadratic formula anymore? Because I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, after that, just opened up the year before, and I'd gone to the open day for that and met with the teacher. They were bought out by some American mom-and-pop company that completely bastardized the whole place and turned it into a bit of a military school. Almost everyone had uniforms all of a sudden, and from what I talked with my old friends who still went there, it was hell. <laughs> and so we pulled out of the... Mum foresaw this, and she pulled me out before the second year started, and she put me into uh, another place, no disability no support. Because the interesting thing was, I was the only one who'd entered into the second year there. I was the only one in the second cohort who had only been, who had not been in the first cohort. Okay. And so I had absolutely no orientation. And so they had this thing called SharePoint, and SharePoint was like this Outlook, um, Windows, Google, whatever the hell it is, sort of one, one point, that's what it was, one point, uh, where they put up all the homework files. Except no one had told me where or what SharePoint was, and so I thought it was the cupboard next to the printer in the hallway <laughs> for the first few months. <laughs> And so I was going there and just seeing blank paper stacked there and thought, oh, well, that's good, I don't have any homework. And then what ended up happening was halfway through, halfway through the, the first semester, um, teachers started saying, when are you going to hand in the homework? And I was like, what homework? So I'll, I'll, then someone said, oh, it's on the SharePoint. And I said, I went to the SharePoint, there's nothing there. And he pulled it up on his computer and he went, no, look. And I was like... Oh, fudge. So, <laughs> so what ended up happening was there was an absolutely ludicrous amount of homework on there. And so uh, they expected me to do all of it halfway through the semester, not having like studied half of the material. And so in righteous indignation, me and my mum printed the whole thing off and it was a solid two feet high stack of paper that they wanted me to do. And so we had a massive meeting with them about that and cut it down to about a third and still wanted me to do the rest. So I'd sort of chewed my way through that the rest of the semester. The other thing was that during STEM, I had done statistics as one of the components of the math thing, because the, the A-level in math is split, you do like uh, three units of math, and it's like there's mechanics, core maths, uh, statistics, all that sort of thing. And I did statistics one, uh, no, I did statistics one and two during STEM for two different uh, A-levels, because I did maths and further maths. Now, by a complete fluke, I somehow got 100% in <laughs> Statistics 2 without knowing, liking, or understanding barely any of it. Oh, he wants to do Mechanics? Too bad. He'll do Statistics 3 because he's good at it. And so I was petitioning him the whole time to get put into Mechanics instead of Statistics 3, which I hated. And he eventually said, like, uh, what did he say? He said... 
uh, I'll let you do it if you do a mechanics paper for me and I'll, I'll let you sit the class if you can do a paper for me, which seems like complete nonsense because you have to have studied the course first in order to do a paper in it. And so I crammed for that, but the thing was after we left that meeting, uh, we'd bought the mechanics one book for me to read through and he said, uh, just go home, study it, come back, give me a paper by Friday or whatever. And so I was stuck in this little atrium just outside the meeting room and this strange woman comes up. And I'd only seen this woman with the janitor before, so I didn't know who she was. And she was being very demanding of me. And she said, now Max, what are you doing? And I found, I found it very disconcerting that she knew who I was, but I didn't know who she was. So I was already a little bit on edge. And so she says, uh, you're doing the mechanics, right? And I said, yeah, I'm just reading through it. And this is the first time I've looked at it. And she said, all right, I want you to do a couple of pages of questions for me before I get back. Um, I just look at her strangely and I say, I haven't done this before. I can't do questions if I haven't read through it. And so she takes offense to that and says, look, I don't like your insolent tone. <laughs> I'm going to go and get a coffee or whatever. By the time I get back, I expect you have done the full page of questions. And I tell her, look, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are, I don't like it that you know who I am and I don't know who you are, and I'm not going to take orders from someone I don't know. And she said, I am the deputy head. Oh. <laughs> so that was, wow. I, I still have my frantic emails and I sent my mum during that, which like, help, please, what do? Oh, no. um, so there was obviously a lack of communication. There was an absolute lack right. of communication. And it's like, okay. on top of all that, they had me doing the wrong syllabus on the wrong board in the wrong subjects. They had me down as doing things that weren't in my timetable for some reason. So they thought I was doing things and I wasn't. They thought I was not mm -hmm. doing things that I was. And it was just a bit of an unmitigated disaster. Right. Mm. Well, I might just pose a question to Susanna now, if that's okay, yeah. Max, yeah. and we'll it's, come it's back just, to you. Yeah, I just wanted to say that's like the polar opposite ends of like getting support, like too much support and getting not enough support, right. like no support, yeah. Obviously. And speaking of support, support, Susanna, you're obviously the Disability Services Officer here at Sydney Uni. You support Max? Uh, yeah, Max is one, one of my one of your students. students. Yes, so. he is. Can you tell us about your experiences of supporting students with autism here at the university, including Max? Yeah, sure. Um, I've supported students with autism for about 18 months now. We kind of worked out with the Disability Services Unit that we had a large number of students with autism who were requiring specific individualised support. And so when we identified that need, we um, kind of set up a program to see how it would work by providing that support. So it's my privilege to work with many students with autism and I enjoy it immensely. They're a very dynamic, passionate and uh, diverse bunch of kids slash young adults. They all have different degree pathways and goals and their support needs vary accordingly to that. Yes, well I was yeah. going to ask, obviously we heard some of Max's challenges, mm. are there some particular challenges that students face in a university environment? Look, there are. Um, students with autism as well as students without autism actually do 
face some challenges. And I do find that there are some common ones, uh, especially for students with autism. Things like changing timetables, moving classrooms, sometimes moving classrooms unexpectedly. Uh, because Janice are telling you what to do, stuff <laughs> like that. that. <laughs> different yep. class structures, so lectures are very different to tutorials, which are very different to laboratory classes, and understanding the expectations and the rules for each of those individual class activities can be tricky. Um, there's lots of different administrative processes at university, so students often have to get calculators or dictionaries approved for exams, and that can be an overwhelming um, process. Special consideration if they need to actually postpone an exam or get some extra time on an assignment beyond what disability services can provide, so that can be tricky for them. As well as just simply selecting elective subjects because there can be a plethora of subjects that they can choose from and that choice is overwhelming. And then we come to the broader university environment where you've got 75,000 students. So that's a whole lot of angst. <laughs> so the social um, conventions that go along with that can sometimes be very tricky for students with autism. Not all of them, but for some of them. Absolutely, and I understand that the university launched its latest disability inclusion action plan for mm. the next five years yesterday. Yes. Are there any strategies that will be implemented as a result of the plan that will particularly benefit students with autism? Yeah, we have actually got um, four key areas. One of them is uh, implementing universal design for learning across the university, and that'll be phased in, well, we're hoping it will be phased in throughout the, the five-year plan. Um, we are also looking to provide transitional support for students with autism because we do find students coming from high school into higher education do typically struggle with the change in the style of learning. Um, the individualised program that my uh, colleagues and I do will still be continued uh, and uh, I think there was one more. Um, I'll come back to that if I can remember it. Yeah, that's okay. How can teachers and academics assist students with autism to feel supported, engaged and included within the classroom? Okay, that's a good one. Um, many academics provide really clear, open communication. Uh, we're looking for that to be across the board for everybody to do that. Um, there's lots of things that academics can do. First of all, disability services does support the students, but we equally support the faculty as well. So we're always able to be consulted if they've got any questions or concerns about a student that they're not sure what to do or how to manage a situation or how to even just talk to the student. We do often provide a lot of um, communication around disability awareness. Um, often academics will spot a behaviour uh, in their mind that is an anomaly and needs to be controlled. But once we actually do some awareness training around that, we can let them know that this is actually part of the student's condition and that they're not being, uh, they're not meaning to interrupt. They're actually really passionate about that subject and they have answers, they have questions they need answers to. That's fabulous. So yeah, clear communication and increased understanding essentially. Absolutely. I love it. Uh, Professor, I'd like to pose some questions to you now, if that's okay. Uh, how well are we supporting students with autism in the education sector here in Australia, and where do you see the opportunities for improvement? Look, um, 
there's probably someone else in the room that would actually be a great Nicole. advocate for that <laughs> um, question. But I mean, I think there are, uh, it, unfortunately, it often comes down to the resources in the school. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I see a lot, a lot of people um, personally uh, in, in school settings, and it's the capacity of the school environment, the, the school to provide the supports, to provide the right structures to support that person, and you get such variation from one school to the next. And I think that's, um, and there's a lack of clarity really around the, um, I guess, the financial support that's available to the school. I think to be able to provide those um, services. Um, so I, th you know, I, I, what I actually do recommend um, when people are in a a school that isn't providing the right support for their child. Um, I mean, I, I work a lot with schools, but we often do end up finding a school that does and shifting and not trying to work against a system that's not working for them. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think it just, it, it really does depend on the, on the school. Are there any international examples? That yeah, look, I, mean, I think system? the Canadian system is, is, a, is a really um, well-recognised system for providing um, good support to people on the spectrum. And it's interesting, the Canadian Education Minister um, presented at a conference and he, he said something which um, it stuck with me and I, I see it being said since then, so mm -hmm. it maybe wasn't originated by him, but he, he said what works for people with autism actually works well with everyone. And so what they found, what the, the point of that keynote was, that when they created the structures that supported individuals with autism, everyone benefited. It wasn't just the people with autism. And we see that in employment settings, that when you provide the right structures, the right supports, actually those supports are useful for everyone. It makes things a whole lot easier, a lot more clear, clear to everyone. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we can take a lot from that. Uh, does the education sector prepare young people for the transition into the workforce, would you say? Uh, well, I think there's two issues. One is the, tr the transition from high school into university life. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's anywhere near enough support with that transition. Right. A lot of, you know, high schools have a lot more structure. There's a lot less change from one classroom to the next and, you know, different classrooms and different people and, um, you know, in, you're managing your own personal relationships. So it's not surprising, actually, that for people on the spectrum, um, they've got much higher rates of engaging in university and much lower rates of finishing the degree. Um, and, that, you know, I think there could be a lot done um, really to manage that transition. Um, and then this, in terms of employment, you know, it's interesting, this, this, the Employable Me series, um, I think, has had a really uh, significant effect on raising awareness. You know, it's and a I, fabulous series. It was a great series, and the, the um, director, Kian, was just a really wonderful advocate. But I think that, you know, we, we get a lot of inquiries now from businesses saying we, we want to support, but how? And we've been working with the NDIS around the how, and I think we need to make it very easy for businesses not only to hire, but to know what to do to support. And I think you know, that's sort of the next step because businesses don't know really what they need to do. Um, and we need to make that simple. Absolutely. Well, Max, I might come back to you now. I'd like to ask you as a university student, you'll have a number of assessment tasks each semester. Mm. Can you provide us with examples of the type of assessment tasks that enable you to d demonstrate successfully what you've learnt and which assessment tasks can be very challenging for you in a university environment? 
Now, now this is an interesting one because I, I feel like a lot of the assessments don't either don't fully allow a student to express how much they've studied a topic mm -hmm. or they very easily allow a student to just fudge it at the last minute. And so I'm, I'm doing digital music and media at the moment. And so, so far I think the assignments that have best allowed me to demonstrate how I do things are the ones where you have to supply composition, which you arrange and orchestrate and everything, but you also have to supply a production sheet, uh, a sort of production write-up for how you made the track. And that allows you to not only show proof of what you did, but also how you did it. And ideally, I think it would be better to just do it all one-on-one -on -one with the tutor and just explain it all in person, mm -hmm. because then, then they'll also be able to see the, the clear passion that you would have for something. Uh, but I, I understand that universities are usually understaffed, and that that's not always a possibility. But in an ideal world, I think everything should be individually assessed one-on-one. -on -one. Absolutely. I believe so too. And what has your overall university experience been like for you so far? What challenges have you experienced and what are you enjoying? Now that's, that's interesting because um, one of the subjects that I did recently, I dropped for a variety of reasons, but it was the digital influence in social media, which is a very pretentious way of saying how to blog 101. <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, basically, it was all geared around this assignment of making a theoretical viral marketing campaign for the Sydney of Universities O Week. And we're talking all about how everyone just goes to all the fun parts of O Week and ignores all the academic parts. And I'm like, wait, what fun parts? <laughs> <laughs> I just went to all the seminars on like where to go. <laughs> so I somehow missed out on a whole dimension of endless amusement that had completely gone over my head, r slash whoosh and all that. And uh, basically I've just been going to university, doing my assignments and trying to find what joy I can in that. And last semester I had an absolutely amazing tutor uh, he was an absolutely marvellous tutor and he showed genuine interest in the project that I w was doing for his assignments and he even offered to give me one-on-one -on -one tutoring uh, separately afterwards uh, to help me continue it because he, he thought it was a, a, a very worthwhile endeavour to continue investigating. And I could prattle on about it for ages but I, I need to keep it short. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, that's, that's definitely one thing that I've enjoyed the most. But the, the challenges that I've faced are when the instructions aren't clear or when the instructions don't even exist. Because I've, um, no, no names shall be named, but I've, I've had one course where none of the assignments had any detail on Canvas until about three weeks into the semester. <laughs> And even as of this date now, in week nine, eight or nine or whatever it is, there's still no detail for the last two assignments. It just says, portfolio task three, no content. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, that's understandably rather hard 
to plan. Mm -hmm. And it's like when, when you have trouble organizing things, or it's like, as my dad likes to say, when, when your time organ isn't quite calibrated right, because it's like I just get easily fixated and sidetracked on trivial pursuits, shall we say. <laughs> Um, we all do. We Max. all do. <laughs> we all do. It's, uh, it's very hard to plan what your workflow is going to be when you don't know what your workflow is. Right. You need a lot of detail. It, the thing with <laughs> me is that if you give me a question or an assignment and you give me the pieces that I need to do it, I will do it quicker than anyone else. But if you leave bits missing and you don't give me enough information to actually get started or at least find the information for myself, I flounder. And it's like noth nothing gets done. And it's incredibly frustrating when you know that you can do something but you don't have a big enough picture to be able to do it. And it's like, I, I don't want answers. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to be spoon-fed the answers. I want clear questions. Mm -hmm. That makes sense, absolutely. Can you describe what an ideal classroom environment would be for you? The, the environment for me so much doesn't necessarily matter as much as the tutor. It's, it's, it's more about the, the, the social environment of the class, the, the relationship between the tutor and the student. And I, I think there, there should be a way to have a uh, relatively close relationship between the tutor and the student, and it's not pressured by deadlines or a need to rush through the material. Knit uh, just allows the tutor and the student to become mutually invested in their assignment. Because if the tutor's just not, like, if, if the tutor's just rushing through it all to meet the deadlines, then the students will too and there's no way to actually get clarity over the whole thing if you're just trying to beat the clock and not actually checking to make sense. sure you understand everything. Mm -hmm. Because some lectures I've been in, we barely get through the lecture before we've gone through the PowerPoint poisoning. And by the time we get to the end, there's actually no time for any run-throughs of the material to make sure everyone understands it, to actually do practicals on it. And there's no weekly assignments like there were in semester one of year one, where it was actually like relatively good. There were weekly assignments to keep everyone in check, make sure everyone knew the material. And then all of a sudden, some, someone went, hmm, we shouldn't do that anymore. And that just disappears during the second year. And I think it shouldn't. I think you should have you should break the units down into bite-sized chunks that are easily understandable and digestible and teachable. You should be able to convey the information in a, and not just run through it and expect everyone to just osmose it. Professor, you're having a little chuckle there. Would you like to share? <laughs> you agree, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I agree too. I wasn't going to ask you this last question, but I think I'll get in trouble for not asking you it, so I will. And then we'll open it to the floor for some Q&As if anyone would like to be involved. Yep. Uh, Max, classrooms in the university environment rely on the ability to interact, socialise and communicate well with others. Some students with autism can have difficulty in social situations. What has your experience 
experience been like navigating the social aspects of university? Now, this is a funny thing as well, because as you've probably guessed, I'm a bit of an extrovert. You'll find it very hard to shut me the hell up. <laughs> um, so, when, when, once I get going, I'm absolutely fine. I find it very easy to make friends. But the problem is that it's sometimes hard just finding the right person to be friends with. And sometimes you'll find someone you want to be friends with and they, they're just too busy or whatever. But I've found that this semester, it's actually been a little bit hard for me because all the people I made friends with in the first year, they've changed units, they've changed timetables, they've sometimes ditched university altogether for illness, and I don't get to meet up with them anymore. And so currently, uh, my, my only real friend is this absolutely charming 50-year-old woman who sits <laughs> next to me in one of my classes. And I love it. Our, our only common bond is a mutual dislike for the tutor. <laughs> <laughs> Don't name the tutor, please. I'm not, I'm not naming the tutor, but okay. it's, it's just interesting <laughs> that at the moment that's really the only sort of companionable relationship that I have going at the moment. And it's like, I, I have the thought in my mind, gee, I should really make some more friends. But it's like, sometimes it's just hard when you're just going back and forth to uni, going to the same classes, and mm. you don't, you missed out on the fun parts of O-Week. <laughs> <laughs> and so you don't know where else to go. Like, I heard there was like some legendary film club that would do movie nights, and I've never found the right person to ask about that. Oh, so, does anyone know about that in here? No? Maybe we can find someone for you to ask about that later. Who knows? <laughs> but you, you get the idea. It's, it's like, I, I think, let, let me make it clear as well, that like, just because it's easy for me to make friends, I in no way represent like, the face of Australian autism. Like, there, there are certainly people out there who would find it very difficult to make mm. friends. There are people who have crippling social anxiety and um, shyness. They find it hard to get out of... Uh, their door in the morning, let alone their bed, and make friends. Mm. And I think you, you have to be mindful that everyone is different. And it's like, whether it's, whether it's someone with autism or without, everyone is different in different situations. And you have to tailor what your responses are to everyone individually, regardless of their needs. Or, 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 or rather, regardless of their disability, because everyone's needs are different. They're differently abled. And they're differently abled. As you said but it's before. like ev even people who aren't differently abled are differently abled. <laughs> I agree. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing, Max. I would like to uh, thank the panel for being here this evening Professor Adam Guastella, Ms. Susanna Gregory, Mr. Max Prinius. Thank you so much. Round of applause. Thank you so much to the University of Sydney and Sydney Ideas for putting on such a fabulous event commemorating Disability Inclusion Week. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.